Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, thanks for joining us today. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to sit in class with Scott McKnight? Well, I've got a perfect opportunity for you. On Monday, May 14th, Northern is hosting A Taste of Northern, where we're opening the door to all of our classes, both in person and digitally on our Northern Life platform. Scott's going to be doing a lecture on his new book, Open to the Spirit, as well as other classes will be happening on Bible, theology, and urban leadership. We'd love to have you join us and just experience what it's like to sit in one of our classes. Um, Also, just for signing up and attending, you get put in the running for a chance to win a signed copy of Scott's new book, Open to the Spirit. So I'm going to include a link to this in the show notes, but we're so grateful to have you join us today. We hope to see you on Monday, May 14th for The Taste of Northern. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we pick up the second part of Scott's talk on the Jesus Creed. So love is a rugged commitment. I'll talk about this in our life in just a second. The second element of love in the Bible is that it is affective or emotional. A beautiful book written by a Jewish scholar is called The Love of God. You know, scholars write books with such clever titles. And he writes this book on, his name is uh, John Levinson. He writes this book on the love of God, and he demonstrates in a long section in his book that the Hebrew word hashak, used in Deuteronomy and Song of Solomon, demonstrates that God fell heads over, head over heels in love with Israel. And it is the word used, probably one of the strongest emotional terms used in the Bible for a relationship between two people, man and woman, in Song of Solomon. And Yahweh and his people in Deuteronomy. And so love is affective. It is emotional. And this is the dominant meaning of the word in American English dictionaries, which is okay, but it's not complete enough. It doesn't have that rugged covenantal commitment at the beginning to get it started. And it is because of a rugged commitment to someone that the affective part comes along. It is not simply that we have affections and therefore, the covenant will develop. It's not quite that way in the, in the pages of the Bible. The third element of love in the pages of the Bible is presence. Love is a rugged commitment, a rugged, affective commitment to be present with another person. Notice how God is present in the Bible. He's present with Abraham in the smoking pot, then he's present with Moses uh, in the wilderness with the the pillar of cloud and the fire, and he's present with the children of Israel or the people of Israel in the days of the king when his glory, the Shekinah glory, dwells in the temple. And then at Christmas, we celebrate what? Emmanuel, God with us. And when Jesus leaves, he says, I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you, parakletos, the presence of the Spirit with us. And in Revelation chapter 21, When the whole thing is wrapped up, we see that God says, and now I will be with you. So love is a rugged commitment to another person, a rugged, affective commitment of presence. 
to be with. The preposition is with. The fourth element of love in the Bible is, is, the, is advocacy. Advocacy. For is the preposition. One of the great lines in the Bible of God's covenant with Israel is this expression, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now you can translate this in a number of ways, but it could be translated this way, I've got your back. I'm in your corner. I am your warrior God. I am your defender. I am your protector. I am always in front of you, behind you, and beside you, and over you, and under you. So it is that sense of advocacy in the Bible. And again, the Holy Spirit is parakletos, and this Greek word parakletos in John 14 through 16 is a word used for a lawyer, an advocating lawyer, an attorney who advocates for someone. And that's what the Spirit is for us. He is the Son of God's advocate on our behalf to work with us. Now the fifth element is direction, direction. The preposition is unto. One of the great themes of the Bible is this, is that God says, I am holy, be holy. Or I am loving, be loving. And that is not because it's a commandment, simply. It's because if we spend time in another person's presence, we begin to be like them. And they begin to be like us. You hang out with someone that you adore or you want to be with. One of the reasons is you want to be with them. Another one is because you want to be like them. And even if you don't want to be like them, if you hang out with them long enough, you're starting to be like them. It's a transformative presence. So let me define love in the Jesus Creed. In the Jesus Creed, it means God has made a rugged commitment, a rugged, effective commitment to be with us, to be for us, unto, let's say, transformation in life, to be like Jesus, Christoformity or Christ-likeness. It is a rugged commitment, a rugged, effective commitment of presence, advocacy, and direction that we will grow in holiness together. Now, what does this mean? This is what God's will is for us. That's his love for us and our love for him. What does it mean when we love others? This is where it gets very demanding to repeat the Jesus Creed. Think about it this way. If you say you're going to love someone, that you love someone, you are making a rugged commitment, a rugged, effective commitment to be present in their life, so present in their life that they know you are for them and that you will grow with them together in Christ-likeness as Christians. Think about that. Now the list of the people you want to love just really shrank, right? You just don't, you know, I don't want to spend that much time with that person. So, and I've learned this about love. This is maybe one of the most important things I learned about love in teaching college students with their parents, and that is this. A rugged, effective commitment to a person goes nowhere without presence in their life. To say that you love someone and unwilling to spend time with that someone is not love. So presence is the barometer of love. Think about this. 
Furthermore, presence as an embodied act with another person says advocacy. If you are willing to spend time to be with someone, you have just made it very clear that you are for them, that you are their advocate. They know advocacy only through presence. I often use prepositions. They know forness only through witness, and they know forness through witness. Witness. Now, witness has two meanings. My wife's a psychologist. Witness doesn't just mean you're in the same room. You know, Chris will say to me, Scott, I'm talking and you're not listening. I'll say, I'm right here. I'm right here. She'll say, what did I say? And I've learned this response. It worked once. I always say, I heard you say you're the most beautiful person in the world, and I agree. She said, that's not what I said, and you weren't listening. And so she'll say, you weren't present. And she's right. I'm absent in my presence. And what we have to do is be present in our presence. And that requires concentration. That requires surrendering ourselves to the other person's presence. You know how people are like this. You know people who are you're with, and you know they're totally with you. And you know other people who are just looking for an opportunity to get in their words. They're not really listening to you. They're just waiting for you to pause so they can talk. You know, I'm one of those people because I'm a professor. You know, We get paid to talk. We don't listen. That's what they're supposed to do. So I have to work at this. So rugged commitment is, is the general picture of presence and advocacy, and no one has a right to talk about direction in Christ-likeness who hasn't already earned the right to speak of Christ-likeness on the basis of presence and advocacy. In fact, when people, well, you know this, when people can speak into your life and say, you know, you need to get better at something. If they are people that you know love you and have given their time to you and their advocacy, you can listen to them. But when people want you to get better at something or want you to change a behavior, but they haven't been willing to be present with you or experience advocacy from them, you see it as nothing but coercion and manipulation, and you should. They haven't earned the right to speak to you. God has earned the right to speak to us and to say to us, that's sinful and you need to repent. And that's why we have Lent, for us to turn from sin. And we can trust God because God is with us. God is uh, uh, for us. And God is working us toward Easter, toward the new life, toward Pentecost, so that we can live Christ-likeness better. So, now I'm going to say this, and I don't, I don't think I'll get in trouble here, but I'm going to say it, and it's this. Americans have four enemies, four enemies that we are unwilling to love. And I bring up, what? The Cubs. I really need to talk about this theologically. <laughs> a team that has lost the world, had, hadn't won the World Series in 108 years, uh, uh, deserves Christian sympathy. 
Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, where was I? All right. We, Americans have four enemies. Jesus said this, love your enemies. Now, this is an amazing statement by Jesus. This emerges out of the experience of living the Jesus creed. And here's what we learn. If you learn to love your enemies of practicing rugged, affective commitment of presence, advocacy, and direction with your enemies, they become your neighbors. They are no longer enemies. And that's what Jesus taught his disciples. He says, I want you to turn your enemies into neighbors. We have four enemies. Muslims in the United States. I'm not saying every American. Of course, you don't have any enemies until you listen to the words of Jesus and you see the practice of someone in your path. Then it gets difficult. But we have a hard time in the United States with enemies, with Muslims. Secondly, we have a hard time in the United States with people of a different political persuasion. Republicans don't like Democrats, and Democrats don't like Republicans. Now, there are good-spirited people on both sides, but we have too much division and too much rancor and too much vitriol spilled out in the United States And I'm embarrassed to say that too many Christians are part of that game. And we need to repent during Lent over that. So we have political political enemies. Third, we have economic enemies. We, uh, We who are wealthy are not aware of the grip of poverty at a systemic level. We do not think at times that they should get our money. So we have a division in the United States on economics. All right. Now the fourth one is on sexuality. And it doesn't, I'm, I'm sure this discussion has gone on here many times. All I want to say is this. You and I as Christians have a responsibility to love our neighbor as ourself. And if they're an enemy, if someone of a different sexual orientation is an enemy, that's wrong. That's not following the Jesus Creed. Our responsibility is to make a rugged, affective commitment of presence, advocacy, and direction. So, it's a nice thing to say we want to love God and love others. And it is the most demanding lifestyle I know of. It is easy to love people we like, and it is difficult to love people we don't like. And Jesus gave us the Jesus Creed for the second group, not the first group. This is why we need to practice it, is because we have enemies. If you and I practice the Jesus Creed, and we practice turning enemies into neighbors, you know, people will actually think that Jesus is the Lord, that he was raised from the dead, that the Spirit of God is at work in this community. They really will think that. They will say, wow, that's something I don't see very often. So, love God, love others. All right, we, I'm going I'm to make a, a shift here to a slightly different topic, but the Jesus Creed is, is only going to work if you repeat it. So I want to conclude this session by repeating the Jesus Creed together again. 
And now I'm going to hold you accountable for, for memorizing it, all right? Or write it on a piece of paper. It's in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, if you practice this for a month, you will rise up and call me blessed and cursed on the same day because it will affect your, your relations. Jesus said the Jesus Creed. He taught the Jesus Creed, and it shows up in the New Testament in a number of ways. It even shows up in the Didache, probably late 1st century, early 2nd century, an early Christian text. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 14, in Romans 15, in Galatians chapter 5, says this, love your neighbor as, your, as yourself, and he says, this is the whole law. That's amazing. Loving your neighbor. He didn't say love God, he said love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole law. James, the brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 2, love your neighbor as yourself. He calls it the royal law, which is probably the same as the law of liberty, and it is a liberating law of loving others as yourself. John, the apostle John, in 1 John, is stuck on love. And I often tell my students this. At the end of a sentence when John, he typed with an Apple computer, I'm sure of that. He's that creative of a guy. Whenever he hit a period, the word love showed up in the next sentence, and he had to invent another sentence with the word love in it. About three chapters deep, you're going, this is getting repetitive. He's not that creative. So love is all over 1 John. God is love. We know God by loving God. We love God by obeying God. We love others, and that's how we know we love God. We know we love God because we love others. It's just over and over and over. But I want to focus on the Apostle Paul because Paul believed that loving God and loving others was the essence of the Christian life as well. He says this three or four times in his letters. But Paul had a vision, and his vision, I think, is one of the most beautiful visions of the New Testament, and it is probably the most difficult thing, actually, to practice. It shows in three texts. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says this, in Christ, whatever, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised. This is Jewish lingo for being a cut above the rest. I knew you'd, I knew you'd get it. You're a little slow on the uptake. Baptists catch that one quicker. I just want you to know that. <laughs> Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Scythian or barbarian. Now, that one gets by us. Scythian is someone who lives north of Greece, and they were barbarians. 
they were like Vikings, Packer fans, that sort of crudeness about them. And the Scythians had just a, 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 the, the reputation of Greeks for Scythians is that they were just backwards hillbillies. And a barbarian is someone who tries to speak Greek and has a bad accent. That's what bar, barbara, that's why we use the word barbara. It's someone who babbles along trying to say Greek and they can't get the job done. So this is, this is sort of social status. Slave nor free, for you are all in Christ, and Christ is in all. He says something very similar to this in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. So the Apostle Paul believed that in Christ, all distinctions and all statuses and all ethnicities were transcended in loving one another in the community. He really believed that this is the way to live the Christian life in context with others in the church, that we will not say, well, you're a woman, you sit here. We will not say, you're African-American, so you sit in the back of the bus. We will not say that because you are uneducated, you're going to sit over here. We will say, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are siblings, and that means we are equal. Paul believed that this was the way to live in the church, where slaves and free would become siblings and no longer the hierarchy of slavery in the household of Christians, he believed that this is what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. And he worked at this in all his churches. If you read Galatians, the struggle is between a group of people who think all Christians should follow all the Torah and another group of Christians who think pork is fine leave me alone. And in Rome, we have a group of people in Romans 14 and 15 called the strong and the weak. And they're at one another's throats over the very same issues. In Colossae, we have other problems. And Paul is always trying to get Christians to form a unity. The unity of the church is the greatest witness the church has in our world today. That, now it's time to say amen. amen. The, the greatest witness of the church is when Christians can transcend their difference because of their unity in Christ. All right? I'll close with this one story. I woke up one morning to an email from a friend, and it was the kind of email that you don't like to get at 6 a.m. And he said, did you see what so-and-so, I won't use his name, said about you on his blog. And, I, and the, the person said, by the way, it's not nice. So I took a deep breath and I read it, and the author of the other blog had really ripped into me. And it was painful. And it was painful in part because my, he was criticizing the bio page on my blog that was written by a publicist at a publisher, and it wasn't even written by me. And he was very critical. So I thought, all right. I edited it a little bit, but I, it, it, was, it hurt for about a week. And during that week, I made a decision. I made a decision that when this person, who's a very well-known scholar, wrote his next book, I was going to review it on my blog. You know? 
What comes around goes around, baby. <laughs> but here's what I decided to do. I decided in advance that I would virtually list all the things I liked about the book and diminish any of my disagreements. And then I was going to send it to him when he wrote the book and see how he responded to me. I thought, I'll put his theology on the line. So he wrote a book. And I have to admit, it was a really good book, and I liked it. But I found a couple points in there that I thought were inconsistent, and I wrote them out as good zingers in the review. And I, I wrote the review, and I prayed about it, and I sent it to him. Before I put it on my blog, I sent it to him. And I said, I've read your book. I really like it. This is my review. I just want to know if you think I've represented you fairly. Within about 30 minutes, I got an email back from him. You know what he said? You're nicer to me than I am to you. And he said, when I write the second edition, I'm going to make some editorial corrections because of what you've written. Now, here's the story about this. This person is reformed and he's big on grace. And I wanted to see if he really practiced grace. He and I write to one another three to five times a week on emails. I've never met him. I've talked on the phone to him, but we've been doing this for 10 years. And he'll write me and he'll say, I see you're speaking in Kansas City. I'm going to be praying for you tomorrow. And I'll write him the same thing. And he'll sometimes say to me, I can't believe how well we get along with one another, even though we differ on theology. And I always write back, we're one in Christ, brother. It doesn't matter. So I believe that this can work. I believe this can happen. I believe that if you and I practice the love of the Jesus Creed, that we can strike with grace into people's life and create reconciliation like Onesimus and Philemon. So the Jesus Creed. We'll say it one more time, and then Adam's going to come up on stage. All right. Let's stand. I hope I didn't wake anybody up. <laughs> and I want to face Jerusalem, and I have no idea where Jerusalem is from here. We're going to face Jerusalem, all right? It's Lent. We'll face Jerusalem and the cross. And you repeat after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Thank you. Hey, hope you enjoyed the rest of Scott's talk on the Jesus Creed. Um, such an important concept for when it comes to how this lives out and plays out in our life, which I know Scott talked about in the rest of his talk today. Um, before you go, wanted to remind you we'd love to have you on May 14th for the Taste of Northern. You can just go on that link in the show notes that I've included and sign up there. Also, next week on the podcast, we're interviewing Andrew Hyatt, who is the uh, director of the most recent new movie on Paul, the Apostle of Christ. So we'll be with you next week as we talk with Andrew on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.